0: Global Voices on Taiwan. Hi everyone, welcome to Global Voices on Taiwan. I'm Rath Wang, a news producer and host. Sitting in for Vincent today is Eating.
1: Hello, I'm Eating Lin from Lighting Those Campaign Office. Um, Today, we will be exploring with you how the latest world events impact Taiwan and how this island nation shakes the globe. We hope this podcast can be your windows to Taiwan's global perspectives.
0: Alrighty. Alexander Gorlach, the author of Code Red, joins us today from New York. Alex is a native of Germany and is also a senior fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs. And he also teaches at New York University. Through Code Red, Alex articulates in great detail how extensive and harmful China's aggression is in the entire Indo-Pacific, whether it's diplomacy, economic coercion, or through its growing military. Alex is just one of the many global experts, journalists, and policymakers on our podcasts. So jumping right into our first question, when we talk about the threat from China, Taiwan usually comes first to mind. Given that Taiwan pushes way above its size as the world's fourth freest economy and the 21st in size, it is indeed a middle power. How do you feel Taiwan should best navigate these challenges, especially with the hostile neighbor in China?
2: If you look back a few years when the pandemic started and in the first year of the pandemic, you could clearly see how Taiwan could position itself in the global family and the global community. So uh, Taiwan was responsibly sharing its data and its knowledge on the outbreak of the pandemic. It was also like uh, engaging in what back then was called a mass diplomacy. And you could really see how a Taiwan that is more and more engaged and allowed to be in the international community could be playing a vital role.
0: So you're talking about the Taiwan can help campaign. You mean starting from that campaign, right? The Taiwan can help campaign that we've seen you know, throughout the world, with them um, goods, say, you know, with them um, um, free mass or medical supplies, donating to many countries, including the U.S.
2: Exactly. So that was that was what I was referring to, and that's like one of the aspects that you could see how uh, Taiwan's positioning in the world um, could be uh, could look like in in the future. And um, you were like. Uh, Naming taiwan as a as a middle power, and um, that 's interesting because it 's indeed a very tiny uh, island nation. Um, however, we are in the time where countries and nations are positioning uh, themselves uh, the so called global south is in, is in movement, players from Brazil to India are positioning themselves in what they perceive um, the dawn of a new multilateral world, the call for multilateralism, which is coming from Beijing and Russia, is, is I think, just like a way of, like, um, uh, widen and broaden the power uh, that the Kremlin and Beijing will be uh, uh, holding or would like to hold. So I feel like being, like, in alliances as a uh, a confident partner of alliances, be it with the United States, be it with partners in the region, such as Japan or Australia, I feel that could be a... Um, away for Taiwan, not only because it's a small island nation, but also because it's like a smart player. And we all do know that collaboration in the end pays off.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your book. How exactly is the China threat manifesting? Um, can you talk a little bit about how it's affecting not just Taiwan, but the rules-based order in the region? And we know you're based in New York, how do you see America continue to play a role in balancing this threat?
2: I mean it's it's uh, it's factual that the 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 Chinese navy uh, has expanded tremendously under the tenure of Xi Jinping. You also see like the crawls in the South China Sea, uh the um, uh, by mil- militaries occupied parts of the Spratly Islands which are part of the Philippines. You see basically that China has territorial quarrels with all its neighbors and uh, Xi Jinping's uh, world warrior. Uh, diplomacy, its assertiveness, and its increasingly belligerent uh, rhetoric uh, paired with um, uh, new conscripts to the uh, People's Liberation Army does not make much um, hope for a peaceful future in the Indo-Pacific or uh, the Western Pacific. And I think that is also why uh, many of the countries in that region, uh, basically all the countries in the region, if you want, from the Philippines to New Zealand, have been looking to Washington, which is their longest standing uh, ally. And they all have, to one extent or another, extended or reaffirmed their military alliance with uh, uh, the United States of America. And that's not only Taiwan, as I said. This is all, uh, all the countries uh, in the region. And I, I think it's fair to say that as the better those countries work together be it be it in the steel, which is uh, surrounding australia being like with the indo pacific strategy that is more including like india and um, uh, the boat over to japan all these all these entities together uh, have something to balance a uh, chinese um, uh, aggression uh, that we see continuing uh, in this part of the world and that could be the um, uh, basically the only way of combating uh, the um, yeah the biggest navy in the world
0: yeah speaking of you know banding together With the U.S. leading the way, we've also seen that happen with Europe, um, where you're actually from. Um, Coming from Germany, you're also a huge expert in EU ties um, with the Indo-Pacific region. We've seen changes in tone with the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, with her recent statement. um, Quote-unquote, she said, China is a challenge to how we live together. What does that exactly mean? And do you feel that this also has an impact on Taiwan, even though she didn't mention the name of the country.
2: I think it's also very fair to say that there's not much doubt about that China under Xi Jinping has changed quite a bit. And from this collaborative sort of like authoritarian regime, it's now a quasi-fascist one-man show. And that, of course, is implying immediately dangers because you do not know how the decision-making within this one person or who this one person is consulting to, how this decision-making is is done is conducted and therefore this is of course a security threat you also know by xi jinping's like utterances and not only in xi jinping's thought but also like in the very first document that was like published in uh, at the beginning of his reign uh he was like laying out the uh, the way of, for china which basically is like to lead the country back to what he believes is its rightful place in the history of the world the quasi-cosmological role uh, that the in his eyes all the civilization on the planet should a play and clearly, this is not at all collaborative. And having like um, his biggest fanboy in the Kremlin, that's uh, Vladimir Putin, is doing the same with Russian identity and Russian his- history. So, you see, like, how these dictators work with the same uh, tool set, but obviously, like, working together only works so long as when they have no shared interest. This is why China that can support Putin in the grain because China does not have any interest in the grain, and Putin can support Xi in regards to Taiwan because um, the Russian Federation has no uh, specific interests in Taiwan. So this is like the, the the global setup in which we move, and Annalena Baerbock, as many as others, uh, do like highlight the fact that in with such a an entity as China is today under Xi Jinping, uh, there is risks to our security, actually to the global. Uh, security altogether, one of the things that in foreign policy has been like one of the cornerstones when it came to China, and this has just only slowly changed during the tenure of Xi Jinping, was the idea that China is interested in stability and that China was never an imperial power. But as a matter of fact, also China never before had such a navy. And if you look into the behavior of the People's Republic under Xi Jinping, you cannot really claim that order is on the forefront of Xi Jinping's mind. He supports Kim Jong-un in North Korea, who is destabilizing uh, this part of East Asia. He's uh, a clear big fan of Vladimir Putin, who is like, destabilizing all of Europe. So the idea that China is a rational actor in international relations, we have to worry, because that's what Xi Jinping is uh, illustrating day by day, and the Wolf warrior uh, diplomacy, as it was called, uh, is also another, another um uh, way of inflicting uh, conflict within and yeah, the orders of diplomacy. So to to portray China to continue to portray China as a rational actor that is interested in order uh, that would fall short. And I feel this is why uh, not only Annalena Baerbock, German Secretary of State, is warning. It's like a global warning uh, when it comes to Xi Jinping and uh, his goals. But
0: well, what does this mean for Taiwan, though? I mean, there's a lot of awareness on China now. But do you feel this also translates to support for Taiwan, given that um, I think we all know that China wants to target Taiwan and has ambitions on taking control of Taiwan?
2: The UK parliament has issued a, a report, a foreign, the Foreign Policy Committee has issued a report in which it stated that Taiwan actually is an independent country. And it was like stating that Taiwan indeed possesses all the features and characteristics of an independent country. So we have to remind, like to go back to the late 70s, that it became a convention in order to gain access to the Chinese market and in, therefore in order to please the communist leadership to somehow forget about the statelihood the still existing Statehood of the Republic of China on Taiwan, but it was never given up. And the United States on China policy only ever stated that it acknowledges that China, the People's Republic of China, thinks that Taiwan is a part of its territory. That never meant that it's like agreeing to disclaim by Beijing. So, and now the UK. Um, parliament saying this like what this committee on foreign policy saying this shows a, a global swing not only because taiwan has been like such a, a great partner in the in the recent past because also china has felt um, at liberty to break uh, numerous laws and, and sorry numerous contracts with the free world or with like uh, hong kong so the point being like the Europeans or the free world has like been like saying, okay, well, let's not talk too much about Taiwan. But now uh, many players realize that actually the only uh, way um, that Xi Jinping understands the stance of like other nations is to just like confrontation and just saying like, you know what, actually Taiwan is an independent country, so we don't know what you have, and this is kind of like backfiring. Now, as a Xi Jinping's policy, world foreign policy. It's like I would say it's um, not only backfiring; he's losing on that end. But that also means for Taiwan that the uh, the danger of war becomes more imminent. Then a more encircled dictator, as we all know, is more prone to make uh, irrational decisions. And uh, so that could mean it's great that the UK Parliament now acknowledges or like or well, not acknowledges but like highlights uh, the legal reality of the statehood of Taiwan.
1: So one more question about the EU and more specifically Germany's role. Do you feel that Germany is leading the way for the EU to be more vocal towards Chinese aggression? Um, what is behind the drive for such change? Is it reactionary as a response to increasing Chinese bad behavior?
2: As I fear, I have to say, even though I'm a German, the German government is not spearheading anything in that regard. as Germany has... Always been very reluctant to position itself as a middle power, and that's for historic reasons, and also like well understood historic reasons. But still, Germany has been uh, and still is the largest economy in all of Europe, and that also means like a, a certain geopolitical stand, whether or not you like it. The German economy has been like hugely and is still hugely um, dependent on the Chinese market, and now there is like there's problems on on many levels, like Chinese car makers. For well, a variety of reasons, are now also good car makers. So, like, and the nationalist policies of Xi Jinping also now does not help to sell like foreign cars in the People's Republic of China. So, the German economy is under pressure, and it realizes the same way as it realized in in the case of the Russian war against Ukraine that like uh, such a high dependency of an autocratic uh, power uh, will eventually backfire. And so now. The German government tries to like sort of make sense of this new geopolitical situation, and you are very much aware of the discussions of the last, let's say, half year, year about decoupling, de-risking. So, but Germany, unfortunately, is once something is established as a thought, once once something is established as a production, Germany runs very well on that. But to change like a once gained idea or a once gained process, that's much more difficult. So, like you will not hear. Um, a similar statement from the parliament in Berlin that you have heard like just recently from the UK, a parliament in regard of the statelihood of, of Taiwan, because Germany does not feel to be the country that spearheads such a movement.
0: Right, so Germany is a bit more cautious in that sense. And um, in terms of bridging, since you shuttle back and forth between Europe and North America, some say that which is what, you know, NATO is kind of like, because it's an alliance between the Atlantic Ocean, bridging both continents. And we've seen strong support for Taiwan there. Um Jen Stolzberg, the NATO Secretary General, even condemned China for threatening Taiwan. Um, How effective is this? Do you feel this actually raises awareness, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast?
2: It's for a fact that the NATO is concerned about, like, what's unfolding in the Western Pacific. This is why for the recent... Um, uh, NATO was summit in Vilnius in uh, Lithuania, where like inviting invited groups from Japan and uh, South Korea and Australia, if I'm not mistaken. So that is just highlighting that the security threat that comes from the People's Republic of China under Xi Jinping is a global one. Of course, this um, inviting of friends uh, was rebuked by Beijing, which also for me always means like something is done very well, because if Beijing is agreeing, then you do something wrong. But like it, it shows you that there's, of course, sensitivities also in, in China because they realize that the world is reacting to the overreach uh, that uh, Xi Jinping has uh, conducted. And um, so I think it's fair to say that NATO, even though they're not planning to, to create a Pacific NATO, but also Beijing claims, it's uh, it's clear that the attention is there. And you can also see that uh, the United States is like, yeah, before this is war in Ukraine. We are involved, and we have to rebuke Putin. But it's also clear that the bigger threat is coming from Beijing nowadays. And so this is why the Western Pacific, which uh, the Strait of Taiwan, half of the, the world container trade goes through the Strait of Taiwan, uh, the very viable and important uh, chip industry um, is in Taiwan. So whatever uh, Xi Jinping is plotting, it will affect the global economy. And this is... Uh, why NATO and other players in the world say this cannot stand. And also, one more thought is also like Taiwan is compared to China, uh, small. There's 23.5, 24 million people there, and there's 1.4 billion Chinese, the biggest navy in the world, and a tiny island. So it invokes the uh, the um, the memory of the biblical tiding of David against Goliath, and you feel like you want to side with the weaker one. Because Taiwan basically didn't do anything to deserve all these threats. I have to remember that, like uh, since uh, 2016, since um, uh, the DPP attained power and Tsai ing became president, um, China has uh, increased its pressure on the island by claiming that the DPP government wants to um, uh, um, in- declare independence, which also doesn't make much sense. But like, as a matter of fact. Despite some discussions about a new flag or whatever color, the passport may be saying that clearly the, the DPP government has not changed anything about the status quo uh, of the island. So yeah, looking into all of this, and I've forgotten about Hong Kong, but maybe we talk about this later, this leads to the international community to more focus on Taiwan and be more friend with Taiwan, because like, what's coming out of Beijing is unfortunately uh, not very helpful given the comparison between the small country and like the second largest economy in the world.
1: Well, apart from NATO, we've seen similar statements from U.S. allies around the world as well. What does this substantially mean for Taiwan? Do you feel such support makes Taiwan safer? And what is driving this?
2: So I feel like the only thing that keeps Taiwan safe is deterrence. It's like to make clear to the leadership in Beijing that the price they will have to pay for trying to attack Taiwan Will be very high, and I feel what helps to bring everyone in the region in line is that if Taiwan falls um the Spratly Islands fall and all the other countries that uh, China has picked uh, a bone with India uh, over the Himalaya border uh, so like Taiwan would be the Crimea moment in the Western Pacific like when Putin took Crimea in 2014 and he was he did not meet much resistance, he thought okay. I'm in the clear, I can continue. So the point being, if Taiwan would fall, that would have a cascade, like a domino effect in the region, and this no one can want. Uh, The president of the Philippines a few months back said, like, there is no scenario in which he could think that an attack on Taiwan would not uh, affect his country. Not only because the United States troops are on the Philippines, it's just like the proximity and the um, calamity um, uh, Manila has to endure with Beijing makes clear that it's, it will not, stand with, uh, will not stay with Taiwan. Clearly, the CCP, since the end of the Civil War, has had a special uh, stance on Taiwan. But I think, and I laid this out in my book too, even though this might be like a precious prize to win for Xi Jinping, it's only one, uh, one part of a mosaic that he wants to like dominate the whole Western Pacific. And basically not only the Western Pacific, it's also like going down to Australia and New Zealand where the Chinese military is around.
0: Yeah, taking the entire Pacific per se so it doesn't end at Taiwan is what you're saying. Going back to your personal story, um, you know, you lived in Taiwan and you, know, you did your research here and closely followed Taiwan's democratization process. Given challenges from China and its intensifying tensions with the U.S., how do you feel the next president of Taiwan should lead under such circumstances, no matter who becomes
2: president? Well, I mean, in the last years when I have been in Taiwan, or actually like the two or three times after the pandemic, I realized that in the in the KMT, there's also like a certain cluelessness how to now position uh, themselves. Because like, at least the people I talked to said like, the rule of law, uh, our democracy, our freedoms are not uh, are not up for discussion. So whatever approximation a KMT president would undertake, uh, it is not actually clear how that would be met in uh, in Beijing. So I feel like the idea that a KMT president would automatically lead into a pre-2016 state in the relations between the two countries uh, is far-fetched. So that's, uh, that's one side of the story. Uh, and it seems like in all the polls, at least what I read here, uh, the, um, um, uh, William Lai, is, as the, now the vice uh, president, is leading in the polls, uh, 38%, and you have just one round, so he would be like winning the presidency. So I think that would be like a continuation of what has been done in the last eight years, and it's also, I feel like, reflecting uh, the will of the vast majority of the people of Taiwan uh, to, um, yeah, to develop further the democracy on the island and and forming the destiny of the people of Taiwan.
1: Thank you so much, Professor, for your time and for your valuable comments. Um, And thank you all for joining us today on Global Voices on Taiwan. To ensure you don't miss out on exciting insights from this island nation's captivating stories, make sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast and social media platform.
0: And also check out our full video on YouTube. Stay safe and we hope to see you again next time.